0: Welcome back, welcome to Phenomenal Flicks. Happy Friday the 13th, everyone, and today I am reviewing the 1980 seminal classic and a movie that kickstarted a genre and defined an entire decade. That, of course, is Friday the 13th, starring Adrian King, Harry Crosby, Kevin Bacon, Walt Gorney, Ari Lehman, and Betsy Palmer, directed by Sean S. Cunningham. I thought, what better movie to review on this lovely Friday the 13th, of course a special episode, than Friday the 13th. Now this movie just celebrated its 40th birthday. It was released May 9th, 1980. Why they didn't just wait a month to release it on Friday the 13th of June, which was the only Friday the 13th that year, I do not know. However, That aside, like I said, this movie defined an entire decade, an entire genre. Now, Friday the 13th is not the first slasher movie. However, it is the one that made the 80s genre what it is. Of course, there were movies that came before it. Black Christmas, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you could even argue Psycho, and then of course Halloween, a movie that I covered during the, the Phenomenal fright segments. But this was the one that ushered in a decade of excess, a decade of blood, violence, gore, nudity, and, in my opinion, the absolute best special effects that we've ever gotten. Ones that were not defined by CGI, ones that were defined by creativity and artistry. Now, I'm not going to tackle this like I do in my normal reviews. I'm actually going to go bit by bit, and there's some certain things that I want To talk about specifically. I mean this is a 40 year old movie. So if you haven't seen it. Sorry I am going to spoil it. But the segments I want to go by. Are kind of the production. And the story. Those I'll put hand in hand. And that will of course dig deep into the biggest spoilers. Of Friday the 13th. Then I want to talk about characters. Ones I liked. Ones I didn't. And how they define the genre. And the character motifs. That we get further down the slasher tentpole and then of course the effects and the deaths will be the last thing that I cover talking about my favorite one and what I think about all the bloody gore that Tom Savini was able to offer us in this movie and then I'll give give it a final grade as I do uh spoiler alert even though I love this movie and especially this franchise it's not an A plus movie in my mind of course there's a lot of problems with it so with that being said let's dive into Friday the 13th So as I mentioned, Friday the 13th is a very, very early slasher, and it was actually created by Sean S. Cunningham, who was the director of the film, as I mentioned, and written by Victor Miller. Now, these are important because Cunningham who was known for making indie movies that ended up making their money back, but never getting a lot of notoriety, never making him a lot of money, he decided, I'm going to take out an ad in Variety. And what I'm going to say is, Friday the 13th, the scariest movie ever. Or something akin to that, the scariest movie you've ever seen. He had no script. He had no direction. He had no story. He just said, the scariest movie you've ever seen. And he contracted Victor Miller to write it. Now, what they ended up coming up with, of course, was... A camp known as Camp Crystal Lake in rural New Jersey, which sees two kids murdered in 1958. Then in 1979, where the movie actually takes place, even though it came out in 1980, the camp is being reopened by a man named Steve Christie. He hires teenagers to to come to the camp, be the counselors, and of course fix up the camp. They start dying off one by one until alice is the last one alive and she is confronted and she is saved actually i put that in quotations by mrs voorhees who then begins to ramble and crack and it becomes apparent to alice that mrs voorhees was the one killing the counselors the whole time she is of course doing this because in 1957 the year before the two we see at the very beginning Her son had drowned because the counselors were too busy making love. That's the gist of the story. There isn't actually a lot aside from the camp reopening and Mrs. Voorhees getting revenge on these teens for the death of her son. That's the basic premise. And in about 95 minutes or so, you're just filled with this characterization, these cliches that I will get into in a moment, of course, and the death that precedes the ending, of course. Now, while this is a very bare-bones story and one that doesn't, doesn't really lend to anything spectacular, it is the way that it's filmed, the way that it is acted, and the way that the effects help tell the story that make this such a spectacular film. And I am not saying that this movie is directed well or even acted well. But that, with the the mixture of those and the effects that all, of course, like I said, get into later, really creates an amazing film. What is really, really fun about this is the whodunit of it all because throughout the movie, you never see the killer. The killer ends up murdering people, but all you see is a hand or all you see is a knife going through someone. Sometimes you don't even see the kills at all. And you are wondering, well, who is doing all this? You're you're led to believe that maybe it's Bill, who's played by Harry Crosby. Ironically, that's Bing Crosby's son. Uh, you're led to believe that it could be Steve Christie, played by Peter Brower. You're led to believe that it could be Crazy Ralph, who is the one who's, who comes to the camp and warns the kids that they're all doomed, they're all going to die. In that voice, I'm not... You know what? I'll try it. I'll try it. So bear with me. You're all doomed. Yeah, I can't do it. So... <laughs> you're led to believe that it's one of these people. And when you find out that it's Mrs. Voorhees, this is actually the biggest downfall of the film, though why it's interesting. And she goes on the story about, you know, I killed these kids because they were not watching my son. They were busy making love instead of watching my son. And you actually feel for her and you understand her thing, but the re- you understand the reason she wants to get revenge because she lost her eight-year-old son. The problem is, however, my biggest problem with this movie, a lot of people's biggest problem with this movie, is you don't see Mrs. Voorhees at all. You don't see her in the diner. You don't... In the diner in, in the small town that, that, you know, of course, leads to the camp. You don't see her at the beginning, even. You could have had her, like, being a cook and while well, this kid drowns or anything like that. You don't ever see her until she comes to, again, put it in quotations, save Alice. And while a lot of people love Mrs. Voorhees and a lot of people actually connect with her, that's the biggest fault of the film, the one that I will absolutely say, uh, you could have had her, you could have had her in the background at the diner and it would have made it a lot more special. But that being said, you do follow these characters throughout their journey to, to the, to the camp and then of course as they're trying to survive now the one that everyone remembers is adrian king as alice our our final girl of course the jamie lee curtis or the janet lee of the movie alice is mousy and she's very artsy and very introverted and she has the eyes of the people that are watching the movie now this was before the major cliches of the final character were established. You did have Jamie Lee Curtis, of course, as Laurie in Halloween, who didn't speak a lot, wasn't as rowdy as her friends, didn't drink, smoke, have promiscuous sex, any of those things. She was the virginal character, normally with like brown hair and freckles and dressed a little more conservatively. Alice, I believe, led Credence to the rest of these women, and sometimes even men, that we would see later in the 80s. She is the stereotypical final girl. One that, in in retrospect, you see that needs someone to save her. One that's not very heartfelt. One that's very in the corner, doesn't isn't always out there. One that's not going to take it to the killer at the end. I mean, it's it's very misogynistic to say now, but 40 years ago, it was like, you know, the one that needed a man to protect her. Of course, we don't look at it nowadays as that, but back then, it was unfortunately the thought process that we had. However, she would end up being the character that's like, okay, I'm going to buckle down, and I'm going to be the one who survives, because no one else can help me. And it's always the character transition that you see. Now, Alice doesn't really have the the character transition we would see in a lot of other females, Later in the decade. However, she is that stereotype. She is the one that, while all her friends are dead, realizes nobody can save me. I have to do this. And that's when she takes, of course, the machete and chops out Mrs. Voorhees' head. Mrs. Voorhees' head. That's very hard to say fast, by the way. She's, of course, has these feelings, these sort of quick feelings towards Bill, who is sort of the, again, stereotypical, I don't want to say macho male, because he's not very macho, but the the kind of hero kind of character, the one that you say, oh, well, he'll end up saving Alice in the end. Unfortunately, he dies and doesn't end up getting to do that. Bill is one of the weakest characters in the film. He doesn't have a lot to say. He's he's also a character that you think might be the killer in the end, and then when you find out that he's dead, you say, oh, well, that's unfortunate for him. But, I mean, there's not a lot to say on Bill, unfortunately. He doesn't have the gravitas that a lot of... If you have the final girl, you've got the final guy, and whether he lives or dies, he's always the one that's going to help until the very end. He doesn't have that gravitas that we would find later, of course, in the decade. Now, one of my favorite characters is actually Jack, who's played by a very young Kevin Bacon, pre-Footloose fame, of course. He is kind of the hot dude, I guess you'd say the sporty type. He and Marcy, who is played by... Oh my god, what is her name? Um, Janine Taylor, sorry. They are... The two that are going to have premarital sex. They're going to be the ones who want to party and the ones who smoke weed. And they make fun of their friend Ned for not having anyone there. And they are the, while they're kind of assholes and dicks, they are the characters that I like the most just because, again, I like to see that archetype in the movie. And we, of course, like I said, we saw this in Halloween. We saw these archetypes in Halloween. And even back. To Black Christmas earlier in the 70s but they're really established here and I think Kevin Bacon is a great actor he proved that he's a good actor even in this movie where no one else is really even that good and Janine Taylor of course did a serviceable job as well she has a very good scream of course when she gets killed off and you know the two like I said they're that that pull in smoke some weed drink a little beer have sex die and I like that a lot uh, another great character, one that lived on in the franchise, was Crazy Ralph. He actually does come back in the second one, and I believe the seventh to do a voiceover, if I'm not mistaken. He is the the character that's telling everyone there. He's an older man, of course. He's probably in his late 70s at this point, telling them, you're all doomed, you're all going to die. You know, All these people died here before. You were going to end up joining them and be dead with them. And even though he's got four minutes of screen time at the very most, he became one of the most memorable characters of the film, someone that was very interesting, very heartfelt, someone that actually tried to save these kids, but ended up not being able to do it. Now, one person he had no chance of saving, of course, was Annie, played by Robbie Morgan, who you actually meet very early on. She is going to be the cook of this camp, You know, one to, of course, cook the meals for the staff and the kids that we never end up seeing you actually think she's going to be the main character. She gets to this diner with all the locals, says, hey, I need a ride to Camp Crystal Lake. One guy who has a truck decides, you know what, I'll drive you halfway. And then he tries to persuade her to not go. And you're under the impression the entire time, like, Annie's the main character, you know, she's going to get there, and then she's going to have to prevail in the end. However, she has at least what actress Robbie Morgan um, calls the the Janet Lee. Uh, syndrome, which is, of course, you think Janet Lee is the main character of Psycho, and then she dies halfway through, which is what happens here. The girl gets out of this man's truck, tries to hitchhike the rest of the way, and she gets picked up by the assailant, who we don't know who it is yet, talks about, oh, kids are so great. Um, she's a little annoying, actually, but <laughs> she gets her throat slit very shortly afterwards, so that's beside the point. And she, she realizes that, hey, Camp Crystal Lake was that way, aren't you going to stop? And then the car continues to go faster. She dives out, tries to make it through the woods, and gets her throat slit and you're sitting there the first time I saw this. I was eight, maybe nine, and I said, "Oh that's interesting that's the person I thought was going to live throughout the movie, and she gives you this false sense of hope, you know maybe she will survive, but of course she's ended up, she ends up getting killed. The rest of the characters don't have a lot to bring to the table i mean you've got Steve Christie, the kind of man that the kind of man the man that is running the camp." He is a little pervy. He's got to be in his mid-30s, and he's hitting on Alice, who is 18 at best. And she's an artist. He sees some of her drawings, a picture, a drawing of him asleep, and says, Is this what I look like? And she goes, You did last night? And it's this weird little flirtation between the two that even as a kid, I thought, Ew, you know, why are you hitting on not only a girl that's very, that's very young, but also one that's part of your staff. And I get it, you know, if they're a consenting adult and if they're of age, why should it matter? But, I mean, this dude was kind of sleazy wearing the shortest short shorts and a very weird bandana around his neck and the greasiest, grossest chest hair I've ever seen. There's also Ned, who is also kind of the stoner, the jokester character, who, again, starts an archetype that we will see plenty of times throughout the rest of the decade. You know, he's joking, he's having fun, and then, of course, he ends up dead and there's Brenda who doesn't do much. She you kind of think she's the she's not really a party girl, but she's not a final girl. She's not really the slutty girl if you will, again I put that in quotations, but she's not the virginal character either. She's just kind of there. Um and then we of course have Barry and Claudette, the two who end up dying at the very beginning. They leave the very religious campfire song to go make love and are killed by Mrs. Voorhees who is of course who I'm going to get to next now Mrs. Voorhees is unhinged she's a woman who presumably saw her son die knows that her son died and wants to like I've mentioned five or six times in this episode already get revenge on any teenager who comes to the camp wants to have sex wants to do drugs and not do their job and again you can't really disagree with her until you realize she's a psychopath that wants to kill people now i think betsy palmer who was a very well-known actress who was on uh the show i've got a secret and she was in a lot of other things of course in the 40s and 50s she plays this character with such vigor and with such strength and scariness that it is impossible not to A, love her, and be frightened by her. She is on the verge of maniacal insanity at every moment she is speaking to Alice at the end. And Betsy Palmer is a great actress, and she was actually shit on a lot for this role, especially by Siskel and Ebert, to, of course, famous critics Roger Ebert being one of my heroes. But she was absolutely shit on for taking part, again, I'm putting this in quotations, kind of paraphrasing what Siskel and Ebert said, this trash, this garbage, this pornography. Siskel even went so much to put her home address, again, this was in 1980 where you didn't think like, oh, if I give a celebrity's home address out, they might, someone might do something stupid. He said, write to her and let her know that she was in this garbage, and people actually did it, and she <laughs> she was very upset with that, you know, she is a professional, a stage actress who said, well, no one's going to see this movie. So she ended up actually not liking it right away. But as the years went on, of course, before her death, she, she spoke very highly of it and how much people know her from this and how could how could something that brought people so much joy be bad to anyone else? And I think that's kind of beautiful in a way. And then there's Jason. So her son. A lot of people think if you say, Friday the 13th, who's the killer? And this is actually a joke that's in 1996's movie Scream. Who's the killer in Friday the 13th? A lot of people immediately say Jason, but it's not. It's Mrs. Voorhees. However, you do see Jason... In this film, he is... I think he's supposed to be 8, but the kid who played him was, I think, 13 at the time. And you can tell he's obviously a little older than 8. And his name is Ari Lehman. He plays a young, deformed Jason. And you barely see him in the background when the story's getting told. He's sort of drowning. He's got a little bit of a deformed head. um, An eye out of place. They, of course, this was in the late 70s, early 80s, where they, they used the word mongoloid. Not really kosher... Nowadays, but that's what they called him back then, unfortunately. And he is this spirit, this sort of spirit that lives on in Mrs. Voorhees. So she even cracks, goes from her normal voice to this kid like voice who says, Kill her, mommy, kill her. And that's what is Mrs. Voorhees' driving force to kill all these people. What a lot of other people don't know, unless you're a huge fan of this franchise, is the. The sound that you hear in a, in every Friday the Thirteenth movie that ma 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 it's actually not ch. It's not the c h h a like the ch It's a k and an m, and it is uh, the person who did the score, the composer Harry Manfredini, taking the kill her mommy and putting it through what is called an echoplex. So it reverbs, re- reverbs off of each other, and instead of going ki-ma, he took that ki-ma from Killer Mommy and made it the ki ma 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 which is just such a brilliant, interesting thing to do. Like, who would come up with that? But he came up with the most iconic sound from these films, and it is it is kind of something so beautiful. Now, the last thing I'm going to say on the characters is, I'm, I'm going to get to the deaths. Of course I'm going to get to the deaths, but... The most spectacular part is the Jason reveal. Now, like I said, you kind of see him off in the distance. You don't really see what's going on with this character. He's just a boy drowning in the lake. At the end of the film, Alice is in a boat. She thinks she's okay. There's the police off in the distance coming to, of course, rescue her. How they found out that there were these murders at the camp, I don't know. But she sees the police and she starts to breathe the the score is swelling up it's this beautiful full kind of symphonic sounds that she's hearing she raises her heads and and right when she does you see you see it for a brief second this tiny little ripple in the in the lake and this monster comes out of the lake and tears alice down off of the boat and it turns out to just be a dream however he is bloody gory his face is tore up there's a lot of grime and what I assume is like moss on his face it kind of looks like he's been eaten by the fish and it's supposed to be the dead ghost of Jason coming to claim her now it cuts right away to her in the hospital and you find out that it was just a dream but it's such a good stinger and yes we've seen stingers like this before Uh, special effects artists Tom Savini even said, oh, I just ripped off the ending of Carrie, you know, to scare the audience. But it is, again, a really brilliant thing that, a really brilliant aspect of slasher movies especially that ended up defining a genre, a subgenre, but also a genre of horror because you didn't get a lot of these stingers in horror before then and now every horror movie, whether it be Possession or whether it be Slasher or Thriller or Torture Point always kind of has these stingers at the end and while you can say well Carrie started it much like Halloween started the slasher genre Friday the 13th really ended up defining it. The last aspect I'm going to cover of course about Friday the 13th is the deaths and the special effects. These are kind of a mix between not that great and also just phenomenal at the same time if that makes a lot of sense. And I'll tell you why. So this was, again, the defining moment of the excess and gore and blood and guts of special effects that we would get in the 1980s. Now, Tom Savini is the main special effects guy here. He worked on Dawn of the Dead in 1978, and he was also a photographer uh, during the War of Vietnam. And he he had said, I saw war. I saw death and I wanted to be able to create that in in film, essentially. So he was able to do some fucking phenomenal, no pun intended, special effects for Dawn of the Dead. When they contracted him for this, and he was able to do some awesome, awesome shit. That, yeah, if you really watch it closely, especially in HD and 4K, you can, you can tell where the wires and the breaks and the fakeness is. But that's kind of the most endearing thing about it. Now, I'm going to go through the really unnecessary deaths first, I guess. Because they're not ones that are really worth mentioning. So you have uh, Barry and Claudette, the two at the beginning. They just kind of get stabbed or killed off-screen. You have uh, Steve Christie's. He gets stabbed off- Well, he gets stabbed on-screen, but it's just a little stinger and you barely see it. And then you have Brenda, who... I'm assuming she gets murdered at the archery range because you see her roaming through the rain in a nightgown, which, of course, is something anyone would do. And a light turns on, and then you hear her scream off in the distance, but you don't actually see her die. You see her get thrown through a window later, but you're not really told how she is killed. Those are kind of the weaker kills, ones that either the rider was just like, I have nothing to do here, or the effects team was like, listen, we don't have a lot of money. Either or... They're not the best ones. However, I'm going to just kind of go in order of characters that I mentioned. So, Bill, he also has an on- off screen death. He's over trying to fix the generator. He's actually the last one to die besides Mrs. Voorhees, which is, will be the last one I cover. Actually, you know what? No, I'm just going to go in order, so bear with me. Um, we have Jack and Marcy. Now, they, of course. Oh, God, what am I doing? We have Annie. Lord. So let me, let me try that all over again. We have Annie, and I mentioned she, you know, gets picked up by Mrs. Voorhees, of course, unbeknownst to the audience. She dives out of the car, tries to run through the woods, and gets her throat slit. Now, again, you can tell that this is a fact nowadays. You probably couldn't tell back then. I couldn't tell the first time I saw it because I was watching it on a small TV and no high definition, but she's up against the tree, and you see the hand cut her throat, and then she starts to bleed out, and it fades, and The way they did it is they put this foam foam neck on her that they could slit with a knife, and then they could pump the blood through it, and it is violent. It is red, it is gushing, and it is bloody. And she, of course, holds her hand up as the blood gushes out of her neck, falls to her death. It's a really nice effect. Of course, like I said, it does look a little cheesy now because the neck coloring does not match her skin tone, but it was the late 70s. Come on, what more did... We really like what more were they able to work with? Now now I'll get to Jack, who is played by Kevin Bacon. He, of course, makes love to his girlfriend Marcy. They're on the bottom of a bunk bed. Which are normal human heights. I mean, I'm taller than a bunk bed in theory, and I'm six foot. So I could see someone on top of there. So they're they're in this room, making out, getting on the bottom bunk, having sex, and the camera cuts. To their friend, Ned, who is dead on the top bunk. They completely miss him somehow, and he has got his, again, throat slit, but this one is more gnarly. It's gashed completely. You see a lot of the tendrons coming out, and his face is completely pale. Now, Marcy gets up. I'm presuming to use the restroom and go clean herself up. Jack decides to take out a joint and smoke, and he notices as he's smoking, that blood is falling on him, and as soon as he looks up, a hand comes from underneath the bed, presuming that Mrs. Voorhees was under there the whole time hearing these two people fuck, and grabs his head and shoves a spear through the bottom of the bed, through his neck, and again, blood just gushes everywhere. And what was really cool about this is they used his real head, and then they used from neck down uh, a fake body. So Kevin Bacon was actually kind of sitting Indian style, if you will, um, underneath the bed, and then they pumped the spear through the fake neck and got blood everywhere. What was actually really cool about this death is it fucked up, actually. Um, The blood stopped pumping, so it stopped squirting through, and um, uh, Tom Savini's friend, I think his name was Tasso, ended up grabbing a tube that the blood was supposed to pump through and spit into it or like blew into it and the blood went flying everywhere else so you get a really good gushing effect out of it and that takes care of Jack now Marcy in the bathroom cleaning up she starts to do a really bad I believe Catherine Hepburn impersonation I mix up my Hepburns it's either Catherine or Audrey or Audrey Aubrey Hepburn um and she turns around and there is an axe coming out of nowhere that actually hits a light and she screams but has no way to get out of the axe and it smashes her in the face and again a really good effect it's a dummy made up with all this blood and the axe got actually crushed into the dummy and looks like her real face and she gets tossed to the floor and dies now the last death the most important one of course that we're going to get to is mrs voorhees her and alice are having a fight on the beach uh, Mrs. Voorhees starts to smack her around, really smack her head into the sand. Alice pretty much kicks her in the, in the cooch, um, and takes her down, and there's a machete that Mrs. Voorhees was using to try and kill Alice. Alice picks it up and swings it, and you see Mrs. Voorhees' face like, oh shit, I'm about to die, and the machete cuts through it and chops off her head, and it's in this very kind of Wicked Witch sort of death scene where it's her hands come up to grasp the air. There's no head there. There's also not a blood, lot of blood sticking out, but the effect looks really good. You can see the toothpicks that were holding the head together in, in these shots, but it's still really beautiful and what I would call the best death in the movie because, A, it's the most satisfying. You get the killer dead, and B, it just, with the camera cuts... And the way they were able to make the mold of betsy palmer's face and torso, I think it's just great. There's also a n- little funny aside that it's um I believe his friend Tasso again, Tom Savini's friend Tasso is he has her bust on his back, so he's kind of holding her up hunchback style, and that way she'll be able to swing the axe you know, the machete through the the neck, and his hands are the ones that come up, and you can see that there's actually hair on the knuckles which most women don't have so that was also a little funny aside. The deaths in this are great. They end up getting a lot better down the road. I would say especially parts 2 and 5 and 6 had some really really good ones as well as 4 and 3. I mean, the the parts 2 through 6 had some great deaths. But god, they all started here and Tom Savini really was a master at his craft. It's no wonder he went on to work On, of course, Friday the 13th Part 4, but then another film like The Prowler that has just, holy shit, some amazing effects. And The Burning, which has some also amazing, bloody, gory, practical effects that is just a lost art nowadays. That we, we do not see practical effects the way we used to. It's all bogged down by CGI, and it's very noticeable. CGI doesn't hold up. For the most part, practical effects do. So Friday the Thirteenth is of course a historic film. It kickstarted an entire subgenre. It laid the groundwork from previous groundwork that had already been laid, and it took it and it ran with it, and it continued to truly shape an entire decade. I mean, we had eight Friday the 13ths from 1980 to 1989. That is pretty amazing. And while some of them differ in quality and differ in story, especially when you get to timeline and age and would the 80s still really be around in 2001? Trust me, that's kind of a thing. It's just such a fun franchise. It. While Halloween is my favorite movie and also my favorite slasher movie, Friday the 13th is the best series. It's the most fun. It doesn't take itself seriously. It looks great. And even the biggest pieces of shit, like part 8 and part 9... I have fun watching, and it's all because of this first film. I love this franchise, and while I would put this movie kind of in the middle of the pack, its impact needs to be recognized, and that's, of course, what I'm doing here. So with all that said, I'm giving the original Friday the 13th, the 1980 classic, a B. Fun film. Watch it if you haven't. I mean, I didn't spoil I spoiled it, but you kind of just got to watch it. And yes, it's cliche. And yes, it's cheesy. And yes, you can tell the effects are fake. But that is what makes this movie so endearing. That's what's made it last 40 years through many conventions, through hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of memorabilia, posters, toys, vinyl records that I owned, different box sets, all these t-shirts, all these things that Friday the 13th has brought to... Not only the 1980s, because it's one of the most defining things of the 80s, but the horror genre cannot be forgotten. Like I said, a B for Friday the 13th, and I want to thank you guys for listening. This was a special episode. This was a lot of fun. I had fun doing this one. It was kind of last minute. I just kind of wanted to talk about Friday the 13th, and I realized one was coming up, so I had to do it. Now, unfortunately, there's not another Friday the 13th till August, but I will do Friday the 13th Part 2 on the next Friday the 13th that we have. You can catch my next regular scheduled episode, which will be out, of course, on Tuesday, the hold on, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, and I will be reviewing Freaky, which is a, another horror movie, a slasher movie, starring uh, Vince Vaughn that came out, of course, oddly enough, on Friday the 13th. But thank you again so much, everyone, for listening. You can follow Phenomenal Flicks on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Please give me some likes, guys. Please listen. Uh, these episodes are awesome. I love doing them. Whether I get 10 or 30 listens, it just means a lot that people are out there doing it. And as always, guys, thank you and stay phenomenal. You had drowned. You never paid any attention. Look what you did to him. Look what you did to him.